You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. I'm editor-at-large at The Diplomat. And officially, as of last week, I am also a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, but I will continue hosting this podcast, which I'm very pleased about because we've been doing this now for over six years. Uh, so it's really been a while. And I really want to thank all the listeners that have uh, subscribed and reviewed the podcast over the years. It's really terrific. Um, I know we're in the pandemic right now, and I don't travel a lot. But one of the greatest pleasures over the last few years was flying out to somewhere in Asia and meeting somebody that recognized my voice from the podcast or had something good to say about the podcast. And, and really, I want to thank everyone for that. Um, but to sort of mark the beginning of this new era, I'm really pleased to have on a semi-regular guest on the show, someone uh, I hope many of you are familiar with, which is uh, Shannon Tiazzi, the Diplomats Editor-in-Chief and Resident China Hand. Shannon, thanks a lot for uh, coming back on the show. Yeah, it's always great to join you, Ankit. Yeah, and uh, you know, I'm finding more and more excuses to get you on, given that uh, U.S.-China relations are certainly heading nowhere good. And that's really why, <laughs> um, you know, for listeners, we have Shannon on today. To talk a bit about this notion of a new Cold War, this is something that, uh, you know, comes on, uh, you know, we've been talking about this on the podcast, really going back to, I think, 2017 and really 2018 when things started to really heat up. I mean, first it was just a trade war and then it turned into a trade war and concern about human rights and technology, intellectual property theft, the South China Sea, the status of Hong Kong. Recently, we just had consulate shutdowns in Houston and Chengdu. Um, unprecedented sanctions against Xinjiang party officials. Uh, so really, we're going to talk about the big picture here. I'm not going to really, uh, you know, zoom in on any any one particular issue. Although certainly I expect to do that in future episodes. But um, Shannon, you just wrote a great piece for our magazine last month, uh, taking a look at the Chinese perspective on this idea of a new Cold War. And of course, you know, one of the one of the one of the statements that I guess anybody that studies Chinese foreign policy or Chinese uh, foreign policy towards the United States will be familiar with is this idea of a Cold War mentality, which China continually has accused this administration and previous administrations of implying that the United States, uh, you know, sees things through the lenses of um, great power competition and is uh, perennially paranoid. I want you to sort of give our listeners a little bit of an overview of, um, first of all, you know, in the speech, you zero in on two specific um, people, uh, one being uh, Wang Yi, the Chinese foreign minister, um, and the other being um, Fu Ying, who um, is, is, a, is a common participant at international conferences uh, presenting a Chinese perspective on, on many views. So how does China view what's currently happening, uh, and particularly what's been happening, I guess, over, over the first half of this year, uh, sort of accelerated by the pandemic? Uh, what is the Chinese view of the new Cold War? Uh, so, as you said, China has been accusing the U.S. of having a Cold War mentality for years. <laughs> Essentially, anytime the U.S. does something that China doesn't like, uh, it gets, gets accused of having a Cold War mentality. Um, so, it has been building up this narrative for a very long time, and it, it, there's almost a bit of a boy who cried wolf syndrome, where now we actually have an administration in the U.S. that is aggressively pursuing a new Cold War, and China is having to rehash these same talking points that they've already used. Um, that being said, in the past couple of months, the official narrative in China has really gone into overdrive. I think they finally realized that this is not just a passing trend, um, which honestly, there's some justification for, for thinking that given the, the Trump administration's foreign policy has been anything but consistent on uh, a number of issues. But I think China has woken up to the fact that this hardline stance is not going away and they need a, a more cohesive 
response to it in terms of framing their own counter narrative to all of the things we've been seeing from officials like um, Pompeo in the United States. So the big idea from China is essentially that um, they are being the reasonable party here which frankly is made more easy by some of the over-the-top language that we're seeing from the Trump administration. So this Cold War should not exist. Um, there's a growing rec uh, recognition in China that it is happening. We are moving toward sort of a Cold War redux. Obviously, it's not going to be the same as the Cold War, but uh, you know, a split between two of the major powers in the world is definitely occurring right now. But in the Chinese narrative, this is 100% the United States' fault. Um, and every time they emphasize that cooperation is still possible, the subtext is if the United States you know, owns up to its mistakes and uh, comes back to the previous approach. So essentially what we're seeing from China is a full-throated defense of the previous engagement strategy, which has really lost its luster for a lot of thinkers in the United States. Uh, it, it, including, frankly, those who don't agree with the Trump administration's current approach, engagement has almost become you know, a dirty word in D.C. policy circles. Um, but China is, is defending that and essentially saying we need to go back to the way the relationship was. It has benefited everyone. And there's also this strong line of um, it, this is the way history is moving. Uh, in in China's narrative, U.S.-China engagement uh, and cooperation is the inevitable tide of history, it cannot be stopped by any party, which is a line you hear a lot on China's preferred policy positions. For example, um, unification with Taiwan, it's inevitable tide of history. And anyone who opposes that thereby is on the wrong side of history. And, and so that has essentially been the line of the Chinese government. They recognize what the Trump administration is doing. They're going to respond to any moves that are made. But there's this sense that this will inevitably go away once someone in the U.S., maybe not the Trump administration, maybe the next administration realizes what a horrible mistake they've made. Um, mm -hmm. That is very much in opposition to what we've seen coming out of the Trump administration and a lot of other policy thinkers in the United States. There's a sense that there is no going back to the previous norm of U.S.-China relations. Um, you know, maybe more cooperation and dialogue than we're seeing now is possible, but the old engagement strategy as we knew it uh, is no longer viable from the U.S. perspective. So mm -hmm. it's going to be very interesting to see how these two narratives continue to clash because right now both sides are just completely talking past each other without engaging substantively with what the other party is saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, just to just to speak for myself on this issue, I mean, you know, um, I fully acknowledge that my views on, you know, prescriptive views for U.S.-China policy have changed um, considerably, I guess, um, to, I guess, a more hardline posture, you could say, than, you know, what I, for instance, would have believed when we started this podcast back in 2014. Um, and I think and I think that's and I think you're right that I think that has happened for a lot of people. And the reasons for that, I think, are important. Right. I mean, this idea that China is trying to present of basically the only variable in the relationship being the United States is obviously oversimplified. And, you know, I think listeners know that I'm quite critical of the Trump administration on a lot of this. And as you pointed out, the Trump administration doesn't really help things by uh, using highly exaggerated, often, you know, racist language to even talk about um, China um, and other powers around the world, which which doesn't really 
help make its case internationally. But not only that, I mean, the way, I mean, you know, we can we can talk about these nice and eloquent speeches that, you know, Wang Yi and others deliver, but then you look at how Chinese diplomats have sort of changed their tune internationally. And I know, Shannon, you and I were talking about this privately earlier about this uh, trend towards wolf warrior diplomacy, where you have, um, I believe it was the Chinese ambassador to Australia who said, you know, for our friends, we have honey, but for our enemies, we have shotguns. And uh, I think his mm-hmm. counterpart in the UK was similarly, um, you know, making the case that, uh, on Huawei, for instance, the UK was either uh, with China or it was against China, you know, sort of painting things in very black and white, you could say even Cold War terms in many ways, um, sort of acknowledging that there is this dynamic playing out and countries need to make their choices. And China's asking many countries to make those choices. And obviously, you know, uh, some of the things I laid out at the beginning that that China has been doing around the region and um, around the world have also contributed to the shift in U.S. perceptions. I mean, something even as simple, or I guess not really that simple. I mean, this was quite significant, right? I mean, um, cracking down on um, the Houston Rockets general manager who spoke about Hong Kong out of turn. I think that really woke up a lot of Americans to the nature of China's, you know, transnational attempts to uh, suppress free speech and things like that. So things have changed. And especially, you know, we're having this conversation, uh, I guess, 90 days before the U.S. elections. And uh, if there is one foreign policy issue, I mean, f- for the record, I don't think this would be a foreign policy election at all. But if there is one issue that will loom large over the Biden and Trump camps, it will be China policy. And this notion about, you know, to what extent do we engage with China? And to what extent do we go all out and seek to contain China? Um uh, to, you know, that said, um, a foil to Wang Yi's speech is obviously Pompeo's speech at the Nixon Library, um, and obviously a very evocative venue to deliver a speech on U.S.-China relations, um, especially at, you know, 41 years after the 1979 second communique was signed, and everybody seems to acknowledge that the U.S.-China relationship is at, a, is at its lowest point since that normalization. Pompeo basically makes the case that coexisting with a China that is led by the Chinese Communist Party is basically impossible for the United States. And implicit in that is this old notion that I guess Chinese communist leaders have feared about the United States, which is that the United States actually seeks regime change in China. And when the Trump administration makes it sound like that's exactly what it seeks because it can't tolerate the Chinese Communist Party leadership, um, I think, you know, that takes us to a place where we're going to probably see a spiral, um, that that things are going to get much, much worse before they get better. But what was your uh, take on the Pompeo speech? Um. I thought the Pompeo speech was really more of the same of, of what we've already seen from the administration, which is framing this as um, very black and white. You're either with us, the, meaning the United States um, in Pompeo's eyes, on the on the side of freedom, or you're with China uh, on the wrong side. And in that sense, it's a mirror image of what China is doing. Both camps are saying, we are on the right side of history. There's no middle ground here. You're either with us or you're against us. And, and that's really, I think, where the Cold War comparison is useful, um, is both sides are painting themselves as the only right side in this debate, um, which is extending into every possible sphere that you can imagine. Uh, what's interesting about Pompeo's speech is He's trying, which many administration officials have tried to do this as well, to draw a line and say, we are opposed to the Chinese Communist Party and their regime and their, you know, human rights abuses, which he mentions. Um, We are not opposed to the Chinese people. We're the friends of the Chinese people with, as you noted, the subtext that the Chinese people are not the Communist Party and potentially could have another government, wink, wink, nudge, nudge which, as you say, is just, you know, red sirens going off for the CCP. 
But at the same time, a lot of the examples he cites are actually, uh, you know, targeting average Chinese people when he's basically saying, okay, many or most Chinese students that are studying in the United States are spies for China. Um, you know, this crackdown on international educational exchanges, canceling the Fulbright program, um, not extending visas as easily toward Chinese people. And then the narrative that the idea they've been floating that, okay, well, maybe we can bar any CCP member or their family members from ever getting a visa to come to the United States, which would just be, you know, such a monumental step. You, you're talking about banning hundreds of millions of people from coming to the United States. Uh, it really erases the line that he's trying to draw. Mm -hmm. Um and as you said, there's there's this very ugly subtext of racism uh, against the Chinese people that's going on there. And I think the Trump administration is aware of that and trying to cover their bases by explicitly saying we're friends with the Chinese people. But I don't think anyone, frankly, finds it uh, a very compelling argument. Yeah, I mean, exactly, exactly what you said. And I think, you know, the United States makes it pretty easy for China to then, you know, push back on a lot of this rhetoric. Um, because it is so over the top. I mean, another speech that comes to mind is, you know, the May 4th speech that um, Matt, Matt Pottinger did, where he made the case that, you know, democracy is a universal value, and specifically, it's a Chinese value. And he talked about, uh, you know, he speaks, he speaks Mandarin, and he gave sort of historic examples of, of the May 4th activists in China, um, in the in the 1999 May 4th movement, and their commitment to representative democracy and made that point that this was a universal idea and that this continues to exist in China today. And then, of course, that's immediately undercut by this idea that, you know, the United States is basically making it impossible for, um, you know, if there are, let's say, you know, conscientious supporters of democracy in China or even um, a more liberalized form of the CCP's um, preference for governance, you know, they can't come to the United States and make a life for themselves or or, or help, you know, foster better people to people ties with the, um, between the United States and China, because the U.S. is increasingly making it more difficult for that to take place. Um, and the other thing that sort of is notable to me about Pompeo's speech, I mean, you know, a lot of the language, you know, like while he was speaking, literally, you know, there were videos coming out of Portland, Oregon, that looked exactly like Hong Kong. Um, and, uh, you know, the United States... Um, part of what made it easy for the Obama administration, the Bush administration, the Clinton administration and others to talk about human rights in China after, you know, uh, Tiananmen and other um, and other um, sort of atrocities that were taking place within China was that the United States still had a level of moral leadership. I mean, obviously, yes, there are things to criticize in the United States at any given time. But I mean, these things have become so stark under the Trump administration that, again, it's made it just so easy for China to push back on these things. I mean, you know, China has been pointing out. Um, examples of, you know, racism in the United States and, um, uh, you know, structural racism and just pointing out that, you know, maybe the United States shouldn't be commenting about human rights in other countries, which is an old thing that China used to do. I mean, they've been releasing a report on human rights in the United States for several years now, but under the Trump administration, it's just, it's just so stark. Um, you know, let's just, uh, you know, I wanted to also ask you a bit about this, um, the wolf warrior trend that we see in, in Chinese diplomacy. I mean, you know, people have their reasons for why this is happening. I'm wondering what yours is. Why is China doing this? Why are Chinese diplomats all of a sudden being, you know, rather undiplomatic, to put it lightly? Mm -hmm. uh, I think it, it goes back to the new attitude that Xi Jinping has taken, uh, which is essentially that China no longer needs to bide its time and wait. Um, China can come out, you know, swinging for the fences on the world stage. And he has actually encouraged Chinese diplomats to have their fighting spirit. 
So if you are a young Chinese diplomat, you're trying to make a name for yourself, you're hoping to get promoted, I think that sends a signal that the best way to do that is to be incredibly aggressive at promoting Chinese interests and um, also the flip side of that, attacking or criticizing anyone who could be seen as working against Chinese interests. And if you think about the example of uh, Zhao Lijian, who started out you know, working at the um, embassy in Pakistan, his Twitter feed became globally famous because of all of these ferocious, as you said, undiplomatic attacks that he's putting out on people. And, you know, what happened? He got recalled and promoted. Uh, he, you know, became a spokesperson for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what we're seeing is Xi Jinping has kind of set the tone for what he values. And all of the individual people in the foreign ministry are now trying to outdo each other um, in terms of following what they think is the line that's going to get them approval and promotions. Right. I mean um, and we're seeing a bit of a step back from that in terms of the voices being amplified. Now you're seeing Wang Yi um, giving a lot of these really lengthy interviews and speeches. Um, Ambassador Tsui to Kai in the United States, who is, you know, definitely not in the wolf warrior camp. Um, it has been more outspoken recently. He had a long period where he did not give any interviews or media engagements, and now he's been reaching out more and talking to more people. So they might have realized what a bad look this was, and they're stepping back a bit. But until the messaging from the top changes, you're still going to see the, these diplomats who are trying to get noticed back home um, taking you know, this wolf warrior stance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's interesting, this idea of an audience for one. I mean, that's often, uh, you know, people have been using that to explain why certain U.S. officials try to <laughs> try to be undiplomatic themselves to basically please the yes, president. <laughs> so we have a little bit more parallelism there, I guess, between the U.S. and China. Uh, and, you know, I mean, speaking of um, Ambassador uh, Ambassador Sway, I mean, he just wrote a very conciliatory op-ed for Politico, actually, you know, talking yes. about the rich history of U.S.-China relations and trying to sort of, I guess, walk things back a little bit. Um where do you think, I mean, you know, it is an election year in the United States, and and this is, I mean, the U.S.-China relationship is really at the center of this, not only because of the pandemic and sort of the culpability that China has there, um, but also because I think the Biden team internally, I think, is also, you know, wrangling with this idea of how much can you really go back to the post-January 20th, 2017 era of U.S. foreign policy with China? Um, what's, what's your sense of what happens if Biden wins in the U.S.-China relationship? So this is going to be incredibly interesting uh, because people who have been watching the U.S.-China relationship for a while probably remember that um, Biden was Obama's point person on China and particularly on Xi Jinping uh, because there was this period during Obama's first term where everyone knew Xi Jinping was, was going to be the guy. But officially, he wasn't the guy yet. Uh, he was the vice president. And so it's a bad look to have the U.S. president extensively engaging with the Chinese president, vice president, which was Xi Jinping, but also the Obama administration was really keen to build up a relationship before she took office in the hopes that that would reap benefits. Uh, so Biden, who is the vice president at the time, essentially got assigned that task. You know, we want you to engage with Xi Jinping. We want you to build a relationship with him. You know, Biden takes his own trip to China. Um, he hosts Xi Jinping when Xi Jinping takes his trip to the United States as vice president. Uh, so in a lot of ways, Biden has very direct involvement in the Obama administration's China policy, which is now coming under direct critique by a lot of people 
in the Trump administration and also broader in policy circles for, you know, letting China get away with with too many things uh, is often the narrative that you hear, whether that's on trade issues, economic espionage or the South China Sea, the island building. Um, so Biden's having to combat that narrative and and come out on a harder line. And if you look at his quotes on the issue, he's definitely shifted stance in, you know, really just the past year, um, post-pandemic in particular. I think it's become politically untenable to really have an outspoken defense of uh, U.S.-China engagement in the current political climate here in the U.S. Uh, that being said, there is a long tradition, you know, dating back, you know, even frankly to Nixon, of U.S. presidents being incredibly tough on China during the campaign, then coming into office and um, not, you know, substantially doing anything to harm the relationship. So we could see a form of that play out. Um, I don't think we're ever going to go back to the way the relationship was, you know, in the in the uh, early. 2010s. Um, as you said, that's not just because of the United States and the Trump administration. There have been serious changes on the Chinese side in terms of, you know, what they're doing and how they're throwing their weight around in the region that have caused problems. Um, but there's no going back. But things could definitely be better than they are now. And I would guess what a Biden administration is going to do is really focus first and foremost on repairing relationships with U.S. partners and allies around the globe, really. Mm -hmm. um, you know, NATO, for example, it's it's out of our ambit here at The Diplomat, but I'm sure most diplomat readers are aware that the transatlantic alliances are very frayed, just like the ones the United States has with Korea, um, the Philippines, um, even Japan. To some extent, there's been a lot of frictions on trade there. So I think the Biden administration is, is kind of going to hit pause on the US-China relationship. And you know, we're, we're not gonna really roll back everything that Trump has done, but we're also not gonna mm -hmm. um, move forward with aggressive policies. They're gonna focus on trying to repair the US standing in the world, repair US relationships. And then from there, there's a lot of room for a multilateral uh, united front to, to use a term that has very <laughs> different connotations in the, in the China sense. Um, in terms of, okay, here are the values we want to promote as a democratic coalition, um, as partners with Europe, with Japan, with India, with Australia, with South Korea, um, in, you know, whether that's human rights or, or freedom of navigation and all of the sorts of things that get talked about as part of a rules-based order, trade issues, all of that. Um, so again, I don't think these issues are going away. There is real substance to them, but the approach uh, I think would be very different and more calibrated. Mm -hmm. uh, at least that's what I would hope <laughs> under a Biden administration. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of what the Trump administration is doing right now is I think locking in things that will be difficult for the Biden administration to reverse. And it's not even clear that the Biden administration would want to reverse a lot of these steps. But, you know, something like the closing of the consulates, for example, um, mm -hmm. that's, you know, um, if... You know, it would be a symbolic gesture if Biden was to be elected and the Houston consulate was reopened. I mean, that would be a very positive gesture for the U.S.-China relationship. Um, but, you know, again, I don't think that that's going to be very uh, likely in the current context. I mean, I get the sense from my conversations that, you know, there is a fair bit of um, 
liberal internationalists on the Biden campaign who I think see the need to be serious about human rights with China, particularly given what's happening in Xinjiang uh, and Hong Kong, um, and, and you know take those matters seriously. I think the biggest place where we might see a change, though, and here I think we actually got some evidence today that you know I think Biden said that he would roll back um, Trump's tariffs, for example, on China, would be on the economic aspect of the relationship. But again, there's questions there about how far decoupling can realistically be reversed, I mean, particularly when it comes to things like Huawei, 5G, broader telecommunications issues, tech. Uh, a lot of what's happening there, I think, is also concerning to the Biden camp. Um, but broadly speaking, I think you're I think you're right that uh, a lot of, um, you know, continuity can be expected uh, that, you know, this this spiral in the U.S.-China relationship, whether you want to call it a new Cold War or not, um, is probably going to outlast the Trump administration at this point. That's my sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, unfortunately, for, for those of us who study China and have invested a lot of energy in the U.S.-China relationship, um, and, and again, let's imagine a world where you know Trump loses the election in November. That still leaves almost four months uh, before he actually is out of office mm -hmm. in January. And what happens to the U.S.-China relation in the interim there? Um, if because I have I've also heard the theory that they're essentially trying to make it impossible for a future administration to repair the U.S.-China relationship. Um, so what sort of damage could be done there? Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of, of steps that could be taken by a reckless administration that really did not care what happened uh, in the future. So yeah, it's it's going to be a rough ride <laughs> <laughs> and no sense yet of will it will end. Right. Well, I'm sure uh, we'll have you back on the podcast sooner rather than later to uh, talk through new developments. But Shannon, I want to thank you as always for uh, joining me on the show. I, yeah, thanks, Ankit. I'm sure there's you know, a week from now, we'll have eight new things to, to talk about. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. News weeks, uh, you know, every week of the news is starting to feel like a month and months are starting to feel like years. So definitely. For listeners, if you've been a subscriber to the podcast, but you haven't yet left us a review, we'd really appreciate it if you could do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. We'd, uh, we'd love for you to keep up with uh, future coverage on, on this podcast. Finally, before we close, a quick note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.